Um, let me just tell you, something happened um, about three weeks ago that has never happened in my life. Um, I, I came to you as a pastor that was fairly young. Some of you still think of me as young, and I appreciate that. I really do. Um, there was a time when I thought, man, I just wish, you know, I'm not a young pastor anymore. Now I'm like, think of me as young as long as you would like to, right? Almost 15 years ago, a 31-year-old, I stood here for the first time and, and pastored you. And since, from the time I was born until just recently, in the midst of all of that time, there was one part of my body that had not started aging yet. And then a few weeks ago, I noticed that I had to hold instructions a little farther away from my face. Can you get an amen in the house of the Lord? Yeah. I noticed things just kind of jumbled together a little bit more than they used to. And I noticed I needed like light to read, like a spotlight on whatever I'm reading. Like I didn't need, for the first time in my life, I adjusted the font size on my iPhone up. And then this is what happened. I bought for the very first time these. Look at that. And here's the thing. They've been in my pocket, so I literally can see nothing right now, all right? I don't have to wear them a lot, but when I'm reading, I have to read them. And one of the things you realize, I've been, I really have, I still have 20-20 vision, according to the doctors. But he's, every time I go, are you using cheaters yet? No, I am not. Next time I'm going to have to go, yes, I am. Losing your sight is not fun. Now, some of you say, that's been my whole life, Right? Like our whole life I've been able to see. I haven't been able to read. I've had to wear glasses or contacts or I've had surgery or whatever it is. I've been fortunate in that. But it was that with that understanding that I came to this passage with just a little bit different view this week. Now here's what we're going to do. This is a little bit of a longer passage. We oftentimes don't read the longer passages. I'm going to stop in just the midst of it. But we're going to pretty much read this all the way through because it's a one narrative, one story out of a miracle and what happens after that. And then we're just going to look at a couple of things for our lives that can be beneficial as we think about the story of this man born blind. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and it says, As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, we are going to stop there for just a moment, just to let you know that blindness was much more prevalent in their day than in ours, but blindness from birth was not necessarily so. There were more prevalent blindness because people in that day used contaminated water or they just didn't have as much sanitary stuff or just the reality of some things that we think of as just needing Glasses to fix or contacts to fix. They didn't have glasses or contacts or LASIK. I mean, I think about our trips to Brazil when we go and we do eyeglass ministry. We don't take prescription glasses down there. We just take gradiating levels of reading glasses to Brazil. And those people come in and says, I can't see, I can't read anymore. And you put a 1.75 on them. And the first thing we have them read is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And you see just the excitement in their lives that they can see again. Where we're living in a time now where if you were born blind, there was no hope for you. In fact, later in this passage, he will say, no one has ever been cured from blindness from birth. There was no hope. They didn't have medical facilities that could help with that. There was no, you think about even in our day, it's difficult, but there was no um, audio enhanced 
commentary on movies or TV shows or in life. There was no Braille language that people could read through that. So your only hope when you were born blind was that someone would take care of you or that you would beg. And that's who you were. The disciples say, Rabbi, what's the reason for this? This man or his parents sinned that he was born blind. And Jesus says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Jesus continued, you must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he said to him, wash in the plume of Siloam, which means sent. So he left washed and came back seeing. Now here's the first thing I want you to just notice in this passage. This isn't the main point. I just want us to kind of think through this miracle. So a man born blind, the disciples ask him a question. In that day and time, there was a one-to-one correlation oftentimes between a sin in your life and a physical ailment. Now, here's the truth. Jesus is not saying that no physical ailments are the result of sin in our lives. You can do things that are outside the will of God, and it can cause harm to your body. Men? So it's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here, this guy was born this way. It wasn't from sin of him or sin of his parents. There's not a one-to-one correlation. There is no doubt that we live in a world that is infested with, infected with, that is changed by the sin in the world and in our lives and in your life and in my life and in the life of the people of the world, that we live in a fallen, broken world. And as a result of that, there are diseases and illnesses and problems that happen in our lives that are a result of the fallen world we live. But he's saying there is no direct correlation here. In fact, he says, God's going to use this man's condition in order to display his glory before you today. By the way, there's a point in here to show that Jesus is sent from God and then he gives him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He is saying there that I am the true one sent. We are moving. This is the sixth of seven signs. That means there's one sign left after this. No, that's a brilliant observation, right? We're moving closer and closer to the sign that will determine that it is time for the Pharisees to figure out to get rid of Jesus because he's too dangerous. And so this is closing in on that. And he is reaffirming, no matter what happens in the days ahead, I am the one sent by the Father. Now, this miracle is interesting because it starts with a sound that no other miracles really start with or that are not very prevalent in the miracle working business. You know what that sound is? I know, I know some of you are like, please don't do that. That's close to lunch. I understand. What does it say Jesus does to heal this man? He takes some dirt and what does he do? Now, here's the thing. In our society, one of the absolute worst things somebody could do to you is to spit on you. Can I get an amen in the house? In their day, they thought their medicinal qualities in your spit. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Like I, now, all of us have been, uh, we've been a part of that in some ways, because my guess is every one of us in this room has had a mother wipe something off our face with her spit. Can I get a hand in there? I just need some support. There you go. How many of you mothers have spit and wiped something off of somebody? There you go. 
right? There's medicinal qualities in that, right? It's not gross at that moment. It's mama's spit. That's not bad. So Jesus' spit hits the mud. He forms it, and he puts it on the eyes, and then he tells him to wash in Siloam, and when he does, he comes out seeing. And as always happens when a work of the Lord is evident in the world, there are opposing views on what happened. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Hey, isn't that the one that used to sit begging? And some said, Oh, yeah, that's him. And I was like, No, that's not him. He kept saying, I'm him. It's me. Ah, it's not you. No, it's me. No, no, no. You're not, you're not you. So they asked him, then how were your eyes open? And he said, this man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam. So when I went and watched, I received my sight. Where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought the man that used blind to the Pharisees. And he said, why did they bring him to the Pharisees? Don't they know the Pharisees hate Jesus? I don't know that they knew this. Here's what I know. They're trying to figure out what happened. Miracles, real miracles, were rare then as they are now. And they were saying, we got to figure this out. And who do we need to go to to figure out if a miracle of God has happened than the representatives of God in our community? It's like, hey, i got to go ask the preacher about this thing that happened in my life. Verse 14. It tells us a little side note. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was at a Sabbath. And the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He said, he put mud on my eyes. He told them, I wash and I can see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. What do you mean he doesn't keep the Sabbath? Well, listen, there are many rules that aren't biblical that are in there about what is allowed on the Sabbath. And by many counts, Jesus broke two or three of those laws according to the Pharisees here. First of all, healing, unless it was a life or death situation, was not allowed on the Sabbath. Doesn't that sound a little crazy there? Healing was allowed on the Sabbath. Guess also what was not allowed on the Sabbath? Needing bread or anything. So what does that have to do with this? They would have considered him making the mud out of his own spit and kneading. You thought we were the first generation that could get... Um, nitpicky about the rules that we have to follow to be a believer. And then just the actual washing in the pool that him told him to do could be considered as work. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him? And he said, I think he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe this about him. They were blind and received sight until they summoned the parents. So they were like, we don't think you're the same guy. We think this is a phony thing. And so they asked the parents, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents say, we know this, our son. He was born blind. We don't know how he sees. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's old enough. He'll speak for himself. Bible tells us they said these things because they were afraid that everyone confessed to him, Jesus, as Messiah, they'd be banned from their worship. In verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man, that's the Pharisees, and asked him, give glory to God. We know that he's a sinner. And the man answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He says, I told you that. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. And the guy said, that's amazing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. 
Throughout history, no one has ever heard of something opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied to him. And you're trying to teach us? Throw him out. Jesus heard in verse 35 that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, or that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. So the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, We aren't blind too, are we? He said, If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. A couple of things from this passage I want us to understand, and this is a beautiful testimony for all of us. And the first is this. We are all born in darkness. This man is blind from birth physically. And when you parallel that to the last verses we just read, and I know that was at the end of a long passage, and sometimes it gets weird listening to the end of long passages like that, spoken out loud. But if you waited all the way to the end and you got to the end, the Pharisee says, we're not blind. And Jesus basically says, yes, you are. You just don't know it. Every single person that is born on this earth is born in darkness, in spiritual blindness. And it does not matter how many good things you try to do throughout your life to counteract the darkness you were born in. Without the light of the world in your life, you remain in darkness forever. You see, the disciples gave the the view that everybody had was that this guy was blind because he sinned in the womb. They thought that there was a chance you could do something in the womb or that his parents did something. There was a thought even in that day that if you went to a pagan worship service outside of what God had prescribed and you were pregnant, the child in your womb was guilty of what you did. And Jesus kind of dispels all that and goes, he's not physically blind because of something that happened, but throughout the rest of it, he's going to show us that the real issue of our lives is phys- not physical blindness, but spiritual. We are terrible assessors of the real problems in our lives. If I were to ask you today, what's the biggest issue you have in your life right now? My guess is that the first thing that would come to most people's minds is something material or temporal or relational with people here on earth. Instead of something eternal and forever real. What's your real issue? Well, if I could just get over the hump at work. With my workload, if I if we could just get out from underneath this debt, if, if if we could just figure out how to make it through the next couple of years with what we've got here, if I could just get over this physical ailment that's in my life, we put our physical temporal needs at the height of it, and we allow the spiritual needs that are underneath to go unchecked without even thinking about the issues that are there. And the first thing that we all have to settle in our lives is whether or not we are going to allow the darkness, the spiritual blindness of our life to maintain control over us. Which is the second thing we learn from this passage is not only are we all born in darkness, the second thing we learn is that darkness doesn't have to define us. 
I love this particular part of it. There are a couple of things that happen here that show us this. This man had been defined his entire life by the fact that he could not see. And not just that he could not see. We see this narrative in the midst of this. Not only do the disciples ask, is it because of sin in his life or his parents' life? There's no question it's sin in their mind. He's a man of sin because of what's happened in his his blindness. But we get to the end and the Pharisees say, you were born in sin as if You have been sinful all your life because of what's happened there, and that defines who you are. And yet Jesus comes along and says, your darkness, your sin, your guilt, your shame does not define who you are. And I don't know what your past is or your present, but I know that it doesn't have to be defined by the worst of who you are. We're all born in it. We all live in it. It's not just that sin and darkness is with us from birth. Scripture teaches that we inherit in some way the sin nature of Adam. But it also teaches us that each and every one of us in this room choose to disobey God on our own and go our own path. And as a result, we live our lives in sin. And the decisions that we make bring real consequences. The decisions that we make bring real problems. The decisions that we make are real impactors of our future and eternity with God without Christ. And they all determine that we are going to spend eternity separated from Him. And if that's you and you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, I'm not asking if you've ever joined a church. I'm not asking if you've ever done any religious kind of rituals. I'm not asking if you have ever at some time thought, yeah, I think Jesus might be on. I'm talking about have you accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that he offers to you? Have you allowed him to define who you are? And if you have not today, today can be a day that forever changes your life. Darkness, guilt, shame, problems, mistakes do not have to define who you are. We'll talk about this a little bit more in just a minute. But I love, my favorite, my favorite verse in this whole passage is that part they say, well, 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 you don't really believe that. You don't believe he's a prophet. And he says, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. All I know is that what defined me at one moment in my life was the darkness in which I lived. And now I'm in the light. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know that the process of becoming like him is not an easy, clean process. It can be messy at times. And you may have made mistakes. You may have sinned. You may have a familiar sin that continues to rear its head in your life. And you wonder, is that what's going to ultimately define me? It does not have to define who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a believer, you've been saved by him, that when Jesus looks at you, when the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus over your life, not your own. You have been saved. You have been justified. You have been made right with God. And you live in that identity. The enemy of our souls wants nothing more than if you're not a believer in Jesus, for you to stay that way. And if you are a believer in Jesus, he wants you to be miserable, thinking that you are responsible for the things in your life that are sinful and bad and that you can't have forgiveness from Jesus. 
And so I'll just say to you, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, then today can be that day to be washed clean. If you are saved and you've got a familiar sin in your life, then confess that to the Lord. Ask for His strength and don't live in the guilt and the shame that comes from it. Which leads to the third point. If you want to get out of all of that, then what you must do is believe in the light of the world. There's this interesting interplay that happens toward the end of this story. And again, it might have kind of faded away for a little bit. But at the end of this story, Jesus, in verse 38, heard that they had thrown him out. And he comes to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Let me let me ask you a quick question. Those of you who have been around for the last few weeks, I know some of you are guests and are visiting with us. But many of you have been here for these last few weeks. We've been talking about the signs of Jesus. Remember that, that John calls them signs, not miracles, right? Because they are signs that point us toward what? Jesus, and what are we to do with that? We are to believe in Jesus. I have written all these signs so that you might believe. And so Jesus here is saying, okay, you've seen the sign, do you believe? And the first time he answers him, he doesn't answer in the language of worship or lordship. He says, who is he, sir? Now, this is interesting because he uses the same word in verse 36 and 38, but the understanding and the nuance of the meaning is different. Who is this, sir, that I'm going to believe in him? And Jesus basically looks at him and says, you're talking to him. And then verse 38 says, I believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. Belief is not just saying, I think Jesus was right, or I think he's a good man or a good teacher. Belief is, I'm going to put every bit of my life on Jesus. Someone has said that faith is only as good as the object in which you put your faith. I mentioned Brazil earlier. One of the things I learned in Brazil early on, and this is many years ago, is that the chairs that I would sit upon in Brazil don't always maintain their structural integrity when I sit in them. Anybody been to Brazil going to amen? And if you, we, we, have, we have strong chairs here. We, we sit in strong chairs, industrial-sized chairs kind of things. In most of our chairs, if you kind of lean back a little bit, you're, you're good, right? You, got, you sway a little bit. I just discovered that the chairs upon which we sat in Brazil, if I swayed at all, I was on the ground. And so I began to learn that I must stack at least two, sometimes three chairs, to increase the... In, the integrity of the structure upon which I was going to sit. Now, when I sit on any of these pews, when I sit in the chair in my office, I don't for a moment think, I wonder if this thing will hold me up, because it has proven me again and again. The validity of your faith is only as good as that which you put your faith in. When it comes to Jesus, we have no doubts about the validity of the one in which we put our faith. We can trust him completely. When this man said, I believe, Lord, he worshipped him. He, he is one of the first outsiders we see. I mean, not the disciples. There are a couple of times the disciples, Jesus calms a storm, they worship. There are a couple of times they understand who he is and they worship. This is a guy that worships him, which would have, he's already thrown out of the synagogue, but it would have put him in a whole different category with people. And I just wonder if you're here today, if you have placed your life completely in the hands of Jesus. 
And here's the last thing and then we're done. The last thing from this passage that I love is that you, it tells us to embrace our story. These Pharisees want to get into a religious, political discussion with him. What do you think about him? What do you think? It's interesting, by the way, that when you see the progression here, when you watch this guy, he goes from Jesus, he just calls him by name, to prophet, to Lord. And I love the fact that this guy here does what other people do throughout Scripture. When they're questioned about the validity of Jesus, they turn back to their own story. Right? I was blind, but now I see. Paul is brought before, is brought before magistrates and kings, and they say, All right, what are you doing? What are you doing on this? Why are you doing all this? And three times in the book, Paul tells his testimony. Well, I was walking along this road to Damascus, and when I got on the road to the Damascus, a light shined in my eyes, and I was blinded for a little bit. And then when my scales went up, by the way, another instance of blindness and the light. And then there's even one there's like, are you trying to convince me in Jesus? And I just have Paul going, well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to slip it in through my testimony. Can I tell you this? The most powerful witnessing tool you have is your testimony. Whether it is I had the worst possible life beforehand and Jesus saved me or I was a kid that grew up in church and Jesus saved me, here's the reality. Whether you did everything you could under the sun to sin or whether you tried to avoid it even before you were saved, we were all born in sin, headed for hell, no hope outside of Jesus. Every one of us is the same in this room without Jesus and that is hopeless. So embrace it. One of the most foundational summers of my life was um, the summer of 1997. I was a Cross Point camp pastor. Now, Cross Point was the forerunner of Center Kid, and my job was for 10 weeks to preach. And so I preached four or five times a week. It was great practice. I apologize to those kids that were at camp. The first two were rough, I can tell you that. I learned to preach in those times. And we would do camp from Monday morning through Friday night. And then the first six weeks we traveled. And so we went from, we went from um, Georgetown College in Kentucky to middle of Arkansas, from the middle of Arkansas to Grand Isle, Louisiana, from Grand Isle, Louisiana to Central Texas, and then from Central Texas to Central Texas, and from Central Texas to Central Alabama. That was a fun drop. And then we got to a place where we were going to be for the last five weeks of camp. And so we determined none of us had been to church in the time that we'd been at camp because we'd been doing camp all the time and traveling. And so my friend who I was rooming with at Judson College in Meridian, Alabama, was a guy named Kenny McKinney. Um, That was his real name, Kenny McKinney. He was a redheaded guy from Kentucky, all right? I told you a few weeks ago that I did a DNA test. I did this a couple of years ago. I did the DNA test, the 23andMe, and I was expecting to get some, you know, some spice in my life. And I came back that I'm the whitest guy you've ever met. I was 99.99% from London or Oslo, Norway. Um, Kenny was whiter than me. All right, it's just reality. And so we went to different churches, and we just tried. We just, we looked up. Oh, okay. I have to explain something to people on my left. There used to be this thing called the Yellow Pages. 
Um, and so we would just get into this book called the phone book, Yellow Pages. We'd find a church and we'd drive to it and look for it. Oh, that's awesome. All right. And so the first couple of weeks we had a great one. There was a great sermon I remember on Jeremiah and the pottery and all that. And then on the third week, we went to a church, Baptist church. Um, Kenny was actually not Baptist. And so we'd gone to his denomination one time. We'd gone to another friend of mine's denomination. We went to Berean Baptist church. We walked into Berean Baptist Church, and church had already started, even though the time was posted differently, and it was an African-American Baptist church. Shortly after we arrived and sat near the back, they said, we'd like to welcome any guests. Do we have any guests in the room today? And the two whitest guys you've ever met were sitting right in the middle, and we were the only white people in the entire church, and every eye turned to us. So we waved and thanked them. They were very, it was a very generous kind of moment and talk. And the pastor got to preach that day, and I will never in my life forget this sermon. Now, how long ago has that been? It's 1997. Some of you won't remember what I say today at lunch. All right? Now, I'm trying to do a good sermon here, but some of you will not, some of you will not remember it at lunch. I remember this one from 1997. And he started preaching about the testimonies of the Bible. And I think he hit every biblical character you could imagine. Every children's church biblical flannel graph character you could imagine. And they were all profound and I was blown away. And he got towards the end and his last one was Paul. And he told Paul's story on Damascus and he told about sight being restored and about God doing what he was doing. And then he said, that's all I've got. And he went and sat down. Music starts to play. They had an old, like, B3 organ. Started to play. And about that time, the music guy came up and grabbed the microphone and said, would you please, and about, in the background you could hear the pastor go, wait. He just stopped. Wait. Everybody stood silent for a second. The pastor walked up to the front, stood about this far from the edge of the platform, and in the midst of that he said, there are a lot of great testimonies in the Bible. Amen and that was not their reaction, by the way. They amen. Right? Okay. Said amen. And the whole Amen, Pastor. Come on. Let's go. And then he said, but ain't nobody. And at every word he took a step. Got a testimony. And he took two quick steps and jumped to the second pew. I've told this story before, and I used to jump. I don't jump anymore. You don't need to see that, all right? He jumped to the second pew, and he looked at us and said, Ain't nobody got a testimony like mine. And he told us his testimony. And you know what his testimony was? I was blind, and now I see. Can I tell you something? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, ain't nobody got a testimony like yours. Embrace it. Share it. Tell it. 
This guy had no way he was ever going to out-argue a Pharisee on a theological point. But you know what they could not deny? He was blind and now he sees. And when you share your testimony with somebody, you don't have to ask every the- answer every theological question they got. You may not be able to. I may not be able to because they're good at deflecting those kind of questions. You know what they can't deny? If it's truly happened in your life, I was blind and now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus saved me and changed me. And that's what matters most anyways. Here's what I want you to know as we walk out of this place. First of all, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no time better than right now to accept him as your Savior and be saved. And you say, I don't even understand what all that means, Pastor. I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. The second thing is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't live in the guilt and the shame and the failure that the enemy wants you to live in. Live in the reality of your salvation story. Embrace it and share it and tell it for all to hear. And God will bless the telling of the story of his salvation in your life. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we're thankful for a simple testimony. I was blind and now I see. But I'm thankful that my testimony is just as simple. I was lost and you saved me. I was destined for hell. And now I get to spend eternity with you. Not because of who I am or what I've done but because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that today everybody in this room walks away confident in knowing their place with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.